Hello there and welcome to the Storymakers Institute. Conversations, analysis and big ideas with those who create the world's stories. A big hello to everyone from the Storymakers Institute Substack community. It's so wonderful to have you. Now, if you haven't yet signed up and you're keen to share, let's be honest, an unquenching desire to share and experience better stories with the world, then all you need to do is fill in your email address at our website, thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com, and you'll gain access to podcast episodes, various written posts, and a handy email that will drop into your inbox whenever a new episode arrives. Thestorymakersinstitute.substack.com is the website. Come and go as you like. And if you've been enjoying the show thus far, we'd love you to share the love by leaving us a review via your favourite podcast app, or tell your mates about the show. We'd be most grateful. Today, you're about to hear from Stephanie Cabanyana Kinyandekwe, a Rwandan British composer and multidisciplinary storyteller working between now Melbourne and Rwanda. She, according to her bio, explores the construction and archiving of culture through transcription into experiential narratives, working across installation and theatrical realms and radio, where she's the host of Passenger and Lunchtime Concert on ABC Classic in Australia. And today on the Storymakers Institute, a real ripper of a yarn as we talk cocktails and the art of responsible storymaking. This is the Storymakers Institute. With Joel Carnegie. It's all about the B-roll. You know, it's not about actually what we're meant to be talking about today. It's it's actually just about <laughs> us just crapping away about <laughs> the state of the world. <laughs> and the fact that there's no cocktails in the lobby bar of this virtual podcasting software platform I'm using. Rude. Like I'm telling you, uh, if we're going to talk about being artists, if we've, we've got to do it in a method way. And goodness knows we all like a little cocktail as part of our self-care routine. <laughs> like we want to be paid, but we also yeah. want cocktails. Like. Yes, pay me and bring the cocktails. Thank you. <laughs> I think there's something nice about those stories of the kind of the quote-unquote good old days of, you know, being in media organisations where that would happen where, where you know, the, the booze would roll out and people would just continue on air. I mean, I, I think we probably both know a couple of people who have some ripperoring stories in that line. <laughs> that um, uh, I will tell you off mic. <laughs> sadly, sadly, <laughs> we're not. That? <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like we've missed out. Do you feel like there's yeah. a part of us, like part of you, that has missed out on the fun, some of the fun of of the making process? Yeah, I, I Are we think too serious. So. I, I think we've gotten into a, a point of being too serious, um, too policed in some ways, um, both externally and of each other in mm. work environments too. Uh, when there's a sense of fun, there's also a sense of camaraderie that allows you to get to the bottom of an issue if one arises, you know. So, yeah, I, I think we've missed out on that um, that beautiful balance that brings people together in more of a family sense instead of a mm. uh, stay in your lane, this is my position, that is yours, this is the corporate model kind of thing. The corporate model takes mm. um, makes us into robots rather than genuine connections in mm. as humans making and complete expressions better. of who we are and exactly. you know, everything that that encompasses. Yeah, exactly, mm. exactly right. Too many boxes. Yes. Um, how would... <laughs> I mean, we might as well start. Um, uh, how would you describe yourself as a, as a human and as an artist? 
as a human what starting with that one wow Well, as a human, I am a humanist. And uh, I know there are, in these days and times, a lot of ways that people um, identify a lot of allyships that they like to put to the front when they're talking about themselves. Um, but I think it's my responsibility in the lineage that I come from as a storyteller from my clan to learn about all around me and be as respectful as I can in weaving together story that reflects these interconnections. And that follows through to my art then as, as an artist. Um, again, in modern times, having a, a storyteller position in one's um, ethnic group or tribal group or, or community uh, doesn't always flow so well. <laughs> so an, a natural outlet in Western terms, is art. In Rwandan terms, we don't really have a word for art. It, that's not a concept. Um, but growing up around the world, I've picked up art skills and training and uh, have realised that that's the way that I can speak about what I do with language that's more universally understood. Mm. And do you think that's so fundamental to yourself that you can kind of pinpoint the this is what I'm here for in this lifetime. Yes. Is that definitive? It, it is that definitive. It's been an unerring force that has always been there since I, since I can remember. Um, I think that starts with me realising how I've been able to put certain senses together uh, in ways that not everybody else does. You know, it was very clear to me um, as soon as I can remember that I had synesthesia, that I could see things that others weren't seeing because I would start to say um, what others would consider wackadoo statements like, oh, that, that dog is barking really blue. And, um, you know, those around me would suddenly be like, what are you talking about? And so I quickly understood that, okay, my brain um, is seeing things and hearing things in different ways. And then because of that, I could start to put together patterns and also inquire, well, mum, what does the pattern on your skirt mean? And why does that fabric get worn when this dance is happening? And then when that drum line plays, the flute does this, and then those feet, they also kind of interact. So, so my brain as a neurodiverse person has always informed my artistic practice because it's allowed me to see that those patterns and stories and given me a language to inquire. As soon as I started doing that, then all of my family around said, ah, oh, well, you're, you're a storyteller. You're, you're seeing these things in the way that our traditional storytellers do. And because I, you know, I was lucky to have parents who had pianos in the house and lots of records, there's always music going on. And my mum was a great pianist, um, my first piano teacher. I, I took to, to learning from her and developing uh, a language that I could share these understandings and gatherings of story beyond words, because believe it or not, Joel, and I know this is really funny to say, um, my family jokes that I'm making up for lost time, but when I was a child, I was really quiet. <laughs> um, and I think I was just very overwhelmed with what was going on. So music mm. was a better way for me to express 
all of these uh, elements in combination. And then slowly when, you know, hands catch up with other modalities, learning weaving from my mum, learning to sew, learning to put together the fabrics and the prints and all of those types of things. And my music took on a three-dimensional um, presentation. And most of my work is is interactive and has lighting design and, and all sorts of things like that to try and fully express all of the things that I'm seeing and feeling and the research that I'm gathering and making sure that I'm telling the right story with permissions and, um, and being respectful of those who are part of that journey too. I mean, that's such an extraordinary gift to be able to see the world in a way that others don't and maybe then be able to make connections as a story maker to things that people don't see. Mm, I sometimes wonder, you know, has this been in my family line for some time and, and that that was just normal or was there other, other ways of uh, people expressing this? You know, because neurodiversity is um, by and large somewhat genetically linked, you know, if you're a neurodiverse person, uh, odds are one of your parents has been or it's, it's been in your bloodline somewhere. Um, and because we come from a long line of, of like dancers and music makers and storytellers and things like that, I, I just wonder if it's just been around, but, you know, the term neurodiversity was only, quote, unquote, invented in 1989. So <laughs> it's not in the Rwandan language, let me tell you. So, yeah, it, it, it is curious how we um, find new ways of um, marking experience with mm. with language and discussing mm. it. And, uh, yes, yes, it is a gift. It is also a curse in lots of ways, and that's way? important to say. Um, a lot of people assume that uh, with synesthesia because, well, I have three forms of synesthesia, so that's another thing. It's, you know, auditory, um, colour, uh sensation so um kinesthetic auditory uh kinesthetic uh gusto lingual lingual as well so sometimes eating things um gives me certain feelings in my body um and also spatial sequence so i have time blindness i do not feel or see time in the same way that everyone else does um tuesday always feels like it's just behind me over there for example uh it's yeah there's a whole bag of stuff but um it can be a Donnie Darko moment rather than Fantasia if we're to look at films, you know. Uh, everybody assumes that you, you see boundless rainbows and lots of colourful flourishes and it's just got to be a gorgeous life. It's really distracting when you're driving, you know, mm. to have all of these sounds around you and um, and hear tones when you see fla uh, flashing uh, lights and all of that kind of thing. So one has to be on all the time when you're out in an environment that's out of your control. So you often find neurodiverse people talk about their homes as their sanctuaries because this is an environment we can set up. And the sensory overload that comes from having to be in certain spaces, for example, I presented a, a big concert um, under huge lights uh, with the MSO and in the Sydney My Music Bowl, and that was joyous. But hours of me without my disability aid, I wear visors every day, um, meant that for the last 24 hours I've had a really cranking migraine and this is why I'm sitting in the dark because um, I can't deal with lights today. Mm. You know, so it, there's, there's a lot that you deal with physically and because that's internal and inside you, no one really um, 
consistently thinks of your needs and you're having to always advocate for your needs and remind people, no, I can't be in that lighting state. No, I can't do this for that many hours. Can we try organising a different way that isn't going to harm my body? And just because you can't see the harm doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Mm. Um, And that is draining. That is Mm. really upsetting and continually um, a pull on energy that doesn't need to exist. And I do hope that everyone gets it together at some point in recognising invisible disability and maintaining that presence with someone when they've disclosed what their world is to you. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about sensory overload because I feel more and more that as story makers, there's almost a kind of expectation that that more is more and more needs to be in the work, in the show, in the, the thing that you're presenting. But from the way I see it, that's not necessarily good for for anyone. I think, Joel, it's a case of working out what your sensory profile is. And these are new terms. Uh, Thank you to the neurodiverse community for bringing up such things. Um, You know, I've, I've seen call sheets where there are actors' sensory profiles, for example. I think that's really wonderful to bring to the fore. What this means is disclosing information, so it is a, a personal thing, um, to say uh, this is how I interact with certain lights. Um, cert- these types of sound environments will do the following to me. When I don't have um, access to a cool, darkened space for when I need some small mini breaks, it means that my rehearsal time is going to be much shorter than everybody else, and so on and so forth. It's just some examples. By identifying your sensory profile and understanding how your body moves and works in this world, it then starts to extend to, well, how am I expressing myself through my presentations artistically, whether that's acting, music, whatever it is? And what is the story I want to to tell in a way that maintains the safety of my body and therefore the safety of my mind, the two are always linked, so that I can keep on doing this every single show for a three-week run straight and not crash and burn at the end and have have the stamina to have that golden moment of the three-day break where you can reflect, write down, document, and then get to your grant acquittals (laughs) and, and have a sense of sanity. You know, I think... For me, I really want to advocate for everybody to write down and work out what your sensory profile is mm-hmm. and how that translates to your best storytelling and push back on those who demand everything of your resources if they're not going to support and supply you with the means to regenerate. Mm. Amen. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's levels. This is the problem when you talk to a storyteller. We speak in, in layers. <laughs> I know. No, this is this is this is great. And in, and in fact, it um, it's 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 not only thinking about you know when you think about sort of sensory overload as the as the as the person who's receiving it, but also the individuals that are making it. And I think there's so much focus that's placed on the audience and what an audience wants quote unquote, and what they kind of expect within a modern day concept of story and uh, and the presentation of story on a stage or, you know, whatever the situation or whatever the location might be. 
Um, and so the focus is on that, what we want to achieve, but yet often it's that, you know, that the, the individual is neglected as a result of that. And we all yeah. just have to do the, the whole adage of the show must go on, um, which as yeah, we have experienced in the last couple of years <laughs> is a saying that needs to be killed. I mean, yeah, yeah. get that say that saying off stage. It is done. Yeah. It needs to retire. <laughs> <laughs> you know, recently um, I had the um, the absolute joy of of watching the producers the film. Oh wow! You know, it's just it's just so ridiculous. But it goes. What I thought about what I thought was interesting about this is it does kind of go to the sort of ridiculousness of of the the creation of story and what goes behind it and the the pressures of yeah. of, <laughs> of of putting on something that other people are going to actually experience. And I don't mean to say that you know everyone needs to go out and find a number of older ladies to uh, you know in, with, in Zimmer frames in order to kind of collect the cash <laughs> to put on a show. But if it works, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, it was ahead of its time in terms of the conversation or just iterating at that moment the conversation that is always and, and has yeah. always been and continues on, you know. This this industry hasn't gotten better. It's it's gotten smarter at fooling you that it's better. Mm. We were just talking off air about this idea of, you know, the, an industry that talks about itself um, and, and doesn't always deliver on on the thing that it talks about. Mm, the, the, the concept of marketing, like who at one point in time in history decided that that one needs to have marketing as, as a study and as, as, a, as a way of being, that this is the beginning and the end for me <laughs> it was, was the marketing because it is, uh, it is an art in and of itself. I will, I will respect it in that way, but it is a grand process of mystification. It will bamboozle you and push you into thinking and feeling a certain way all the while doing something that is perhaps against your personal beliefs um, and by and large not really delivering exactly what you want and need in a sustainable way because then they'll keep on remarketing to make sure you keep on re-engaging and supplying them with funds to do whatever they like. Um, So for me, I, I feel like the industry around us is on that same pathway. The industry has turned into corporation. And it is not as uh, altruistic as it will proclaim. It forces everybody who works in it, the artists, the creatives, the storytellers, the makers, to become cogs in their machine rather than a community that is actively sharing, engaging and looking after each other. When you have a hierarchy, when you are at the mercy of the uppers, the the grant providers, the venues, the whatevers who are who are pushing you to not be so safe with your body and and your mental space, then that's not community. You know that's abuse. That's abuse, and we we really need to call it that. Because fundamentally, at the end of the day, when you strip back all of the the, the facades, story. For me, in story and story making is an absolute fundamental human right, and that everyone should have access to be able to share story. Um, 
in some co- context, of course, there are individuals that that this is their their, their focus. You know, um, within as you've described today about how you sit in the in the in the sort of function of your family and 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 community and and that being a sort of central tenet to yourself. But I still think, regardless, we all have this. Um, this is an innateness about the process, which kind of, in a way, has been kind of co-opted by by forces that um, that can kind of disrupt the the flow of the creation and of the creative process by demands that are not necessarily um, in alignment with values or in alignment with what might be the best outcome for the story. And the the demand that you um, disengage in a way or stand up, stand out from a community setting, this push for the neoliberal self uh, as, as storytellers also changes the story. Uh, I'm constantly surprised and upset by seeing people present stories as if they are their own without the credit of where these storylines come from. Stories are, are not from nowhere. We, we don't live as solo individual beings on islands with no connection, you know. You are part of, of the world and communities, plural, around you, either of, of design or by your own making. And so where whatever research you have gathered, whoever you have talked to, whoever you have worked with in the creation and the formation of that story and the way you present it absolutely has to be credited and respected and that is not the case when it comes to how our world around us, so audience perspective, wanting to engage with you as this, this idol, this icon. That elevation um, is dangerous, whereas the storyteller in older terms has always been someone who comes to the front of stage but with the knowledge from community that they have gathered respectfully, appropriately and are representing community um, in the way that they want and need and crediting all. So there's a fundamental disconnect um, culturally, I see, with how we as storytellers are, are presenting work and are forced to have an ownership and independent stamp compared to where we've come from and where the stories have come from. Mm. If we kind of take the extension of where we are now and, and, and unravel it further, uh, I guess there's two questions. One, where does this take us if, if we are continuing in this sort of mode that we are right now? And what is the opportunity or what is the what is the opportunity here for us to consider it on an alternative way and what might that look like? Future building and design. Look, as a speculative fiction lover <laughs> since I was a child, you know, <laughs> I've always dreamed of these things. How, how, how will this work? I, I think there's going to be a, a saturation point. I, I feel like we're perhaps almost there in the in in the last couple of years with pandemic and, and that kind of thing. It's really brought more people online in an interconnected sense uh, and more demand for engagement and content. 
Also, who brought up the word content? That has got to go. I'm not a content. Someone called me a content maker and I thought it was the worst insult that has <laughs> ever been hurled at my person. You know, so rude. Mm. I, I don't make content for you because that is a consumerist term. Again, we come back to the marketing. No, mm. I'm not a content maker. So I, I think we are, we're reaching globally this point where there's so much going on. And when we had few storytellers, leaders, icons to streamline our, our thoughts and processes with and engage with, now we have millions that are being born and made every single day. So who do you go to? And also, does that then change the nature of validity and authenticity in story creation and sharing too? That, that is a huge concern. There's a time where people are catching up, generations are catching up to realise, oh, hang on, I can't trust all of this stuff that's coming at me. It might be packaged beautifully. It might look really nice on, on the Instagrams and the TikToks and all the things, but and, and even on stages in the way that, you know, live theatre shows have, have changed the way that you present. But, but is this real or, or is this a, a, a make-believe? Like at what point am I still learning through the storytelling and still engaging with the storytelling. So for me, the future is going to crumble a, a bunch of these, these services to a point where or individuals will navigate their reception and choosing of so-called, so quote-unquote, content by limiting what we engage with because it is too much and you can't keep up and people are tired of being lied to. It's such a great point, Stephanie, because, you know, when you go online and, and you see, you know, <clears throat> what has been created, and, 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 I, and I hate to say, I hate to, you know, feel like I'm the old fuddy-duddy here or whatever that's, you know, not on the <laughs> latest craze of whatever. Um, but all that I can see this as being is potentially funny, a time-wasting and 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 a lie at the end of the day uh, you know just and there might be there might be genuineness to the individuals somewhere in that but the way in which it's kind of presented it feels like it feels fake um and 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 there are of course genuine people who you know who who do that and perhaps there is a sort of online if we kind of there, there is a sort of trend to be you know just thinking about snapping yourself at any random point in the day and it's not filtered and it's not Instagrammable. So we've kind of at least moved yeah. through the filters phase mm. of, you know. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I just I just kind of, I don't really want to engage with any of it, to be honest, anymore. I'm just done, <laughs> you know. Just done. Well, look, to, to extend the old fuddy-duddiness, because I think I'm, I'm a few years on you, my friend, so let, let me be, be the grump in this conversation here <laughs> by by taking it another step forward in saying that I am quite disappointed. There are a lot of young people on, and I'm going to definitely say social media, who present in such a confident way that it, it convinces each other and even older generations of what they're saying. But quite often it's not factually correct. And there is a danger, there is a danger of unresearched information that is spreading 
that changes the minds of whole generations. Now, I am not besmirching their right to, to, to voice and to present and to share what they would like in a global way. Do it, kids. Do it. I think it's wonderful. And that, that you have such confidence and ease with communicating. Ah, if only I had that when I was younger. Amazing. However, please do your homework and don't, don't be part of fake news. And that's the dangers that, that we see here. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm definitely feeling like an old auntie in a lot of ways and I'm seeing so many of these kids just telling me stuff that I think, oh, that's some faff, my friend. I don't know. I don't know that that's going to help cure your COVID. Like, what are you talking about? Well, you should proudly own that stamp of, <laughs> of, of auntie staffer. You know, like that's, 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 a, I, that's a I've mode been, right there. I've been an auntie for a really long time. <laughs> There's also something about, you know, handpicking out of the digital world and throwing these individuals in an environment where, you know, you really need the experience to really show up and deliver. And the the sad aspect of that is that if you are thrown onto a stage too early and you're not ready, but just because you've kind of gathered uh, some momentum in another mm-hmm. format... Um, that can also be really damaging for the individual, not only for their kind of mental capacity and how they view themselves in the world and how they go on with their work, but it also, you know, there's, there's something not kind of right about that either by sort of throwing someone into, into something too early when they're not quite ready for it or don't have the level of experience required. And this is where the intergenerational dialogue is so key. And I know when you're a young person, sometimes you look at the olders and go, oh, like, as the kids would say, okay, boomer. Like they get very frustrated with um, hearing someone wanting to to share or impart a different perspective for their respectively uh, lived experience of some time. So by having young, young um, independent uh, authority and authorship in a global sense on the internet, it can disrupt some of those conversations where they might be uncomfortable for both sides, both generations in the conversation, but there is a learning and there is a sharing there. And with age and experience often comes seeing our frailty as humans and as animals and knowing what a burnout feels like and knowing when something is too much and being able to then care for someone who's younger than you and saying, well, I've I've been through this. I can see you're heading down that path. How can we support you to not have that? Because I've seen it and I felt it and I I would wish it upon no one, you know. So um, that, that disruption in intergenerational dialogue we see through universities, we see younger and younger and younger tutors and teachers um, in education circumstances. And that can be powerful. It can be great when you're a young person seeing someone who's only just a few years older than you. They, You feel like they're somewhat on your wavelength. That is wonderful. But we shouldn't discount those who have had, you know, another 10, 20, 30 years on top. And if there's a way that we can try and bring those conversations together, as we would in community, when all generations are in the mix in these storytelling moments, 
um, perhaps we might be able to circuit break some of the the damage in the the corporate demand for relentless, consistent, happy smile, high face production. Mm. I want to sort of draw on something that you touched on there, um, which is the role of elders in storytelling. It's not something that is, I would say, I could put this out there, that is done particularly well in a Western context. This is why I say in in the iterations of my bio, I mean, that's a running joke for any artist and storyteller. We've always got like 10 million on the go. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's such a hard What's thing. What's today's? <laughs> yes. How do I boil myself down to 200 words just to make it pithy for you? Um, I literally did that before this conversation. She's <laughs> like, can you cut it back to 200 words? And I was like, oh, slice, done. <laughs> oh, it's so hard. It's so hard. And also, how dare you? How dare you demand that I distill? myself to a collection <laughs> of of you know hopefully meaningful phrases just for your convenience yeah I'm just a whole, a whole bunch of letters yeah I mean, really consonants and vowels is that all you think i am i love the the black community's <laughs> phrase i contain multitudes you know, whenever people tell me to reduce things, I'm like, I contain multitudes, go away. But, you know, one of the things that I say in my bio is, you know, um, it's it's a research-informed uh, arts practice and storytelling practice, and I am concerned with the construction and uh, archiving of culture through transcription into experiential narratives. Now, what this means for me, and this is how I, I ping back to working with elders, is trying to reinforce to everybody, regardless of, of your cultural background, wherever you are, that you are in these modern times with the way that we have an everlasting digital footprint and stamp of who we are across the globe, you Terrifying. are a constructor and an archiver of your culture. Okay, you, you are whether you like it or not, this, this is what's happening now. And so how are we mindful of that? Knowing that, that it's already a fact, then how, how do you share? What do you share? What would you like to have left on this earth and know that it is around far after you're gone? How would you like future generations to see your output as a, as a, as a worker, as a maker, as a, as a whatever? You know, so that is a fundamental part of my practice and the conversations that I have. I often ask three questions, you know, what is your ancestry? And there's lots of ways that you can answer that one. What is your temporality? What are you doing now? How are you engaging with this time-space continuum? And what is your legacy? What are you leaving? What do you want to leave? Um, And so in order to answer those questions and to navigate them, I have to talk to the people who have done that before me and engage with those conversations um, with, with elders and of the understanding that one day we may become elders in a cultural sense or just literally we are the elders of age um, to the generations after us. So, so how are you going to make that tr- transition? And I think once you start to speak in those terms with people around you, that unlocks and releases a new sense of agency and confidence of the importance of you. Because as we're talking about, Joel, having millions of 
quote unquote content creators and all of those people around you, it can make you feel really small and really unimportant in, in a lot of ways. You know, well, why would I bother going on, on the thing? There's, there's lots of people who are already saying well, some of my thoughts and they're doing it really well and under great lighting and filters. So how am I going to engage in that conversation, you know? So it, it, it can take away the sense of your, your place on this earth. So my work often tries to um, reignite that connection and also be respectful of um, this pivot between Western and non-Western. And that's something that I live through just the makeup of how I have come to be on this earth. My dad is is a British man. My mum is a Rwandan one. I, I grew up with the mum. I grew up with with being told every day that I'm a Rwandan woman and I'm lucky to have had that connection to that culture. But uh, it's been interesting speaking to my father who'd left Britain the second he could because he couldn't see um, people around him sharing his more global worldviews and he didn't want, want to be a part of contributing to that type of England. Um, and he made a really great point where he said to me once, you know, having lived and worked with my mum across the globe, lots of different countries before we even reached school age, he said there's a difference not just about Western and non-Western, but there's a difference about population density because some of the places that they have lived and worked, i.e. Wales, they had a great time living in Wales for, for a little bit. He said because it's smaller communities, when there's less population density, it means that you have more depth to the connections of your community around you. And there are some amazing storytellers, cultural lines, and indeed song lines that go through Wales. So I, do, I don't always want to use the binary of Western and non, non-Western, and Western often meaning code for um, colonial in the way that it's engaged with uh, other communities. But it, 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 sh- it should be sometimes reframed to these population hubs that have disconnected and disrupted our everyday connection and curiosity of each other. And, and the way that we speak. You know, I, I rarely see anybody smile at each other on a tram or down the street. But then when I'm when I'm home and when I'm in spaces where there are less people per landmass, you know, everybody has a connection with you. They might not like you as a human and that's fine as well. <laughs> they might have to withstand you, but they will they will treat you with respect in that interaction because they have to. And because if anything happens, like we have this thing, I'm from the mountains of Rwanda and the Western uh, Rusizi district high up where, you know, there are the gorillas and, and, and Lake Kivu starts one of the, the fonts that runs up and becomes the Nile. And this idol has so many landslides, so much rainfall and lots of lightning strikes. You know, it's, it's an incredible, powerful weather, micro weather, weather force of its own. It's known as soon as there's a storm, you're going to get some knocks on the door because whoever's out and about walking wherever, they're going to have to duck in and get get cover. So you just open your doors. No one locks their doors. You have your doors open all the time and you just have to deal with whoever's coming on down. 
And that might be for a day. It might be for a few days. Sometimes we've had storms that have gone for a week and now you have a new house guest and a new friend that you are going to have to get along with. You know, so these types of natural circumstances, when you suddenly have mega cities, you know, we have cities on this planet that have as many, if not more people than the entire population of Australia. When you have that population density, how do you have this care for each other? And therefore, this dialogue that weaves itself into story, that weaves itself into sharing where I am, where you are, and how we're coming together. How can you do that? Mm. And also care of country as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as storytellers, story makers, um, how do you break down that those 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 barriers between these concepts of Western and non-Western. I think that the way in which you've reframed it today, you know, through population, uh, thinking about it as population hubs makes so much sense because then you realise that the uh, um, you can kind of go, well, okay, that makes that makes sense. Bigger city, you know, you're kind of alone in a big city, go to a small place, people know you, and there's a different sort of relationship going on there in connection to to story. But we're in this sort of environment now where we're part of a city, but we're also part of a state, we're also part of a country, um, which has certain kind of agendas going on and certain mm-hmm. issues that are kind of existing and things that are mm-hmm. rising and falling at any one given time. And then you bring that out, you push that out further because we're connected to, you know, if being in a Australia, we're connected to to, to Britain through colonisation and, and then other countries as a result of Britain's, Britain's colonisation and then we yeah. look to those people and we go, okay, well, as story makers, we're either aspiring to go there because we, you know, we can't make it here because it's either too small or, you know, whatever we feel like being away is kind of better opportunity. And then in this country, we've got this beautiful thing of called, you know, the kind of the situation where in a way by leaving the country and coming back to the country, you somehow had to have a higher level of status as a story maker. The cultural cringe. Yeah. 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 It's the cultural cringe of Australia that just thinking of itself as lesser and not, not understanding that that is the thought process there, that, um, that everything overseas is always better because the so-called designers of this quote-unquote country of Australia um, were originally from offshore. And so, and also to be clear, I am not in any way discounting colonisation and the, the megastructure that that is, the ongoing megastructure that is when we're pivoting between looking at uh, the, the interconnectedness of community storytelling between population hubs and, and smaller spaces. I, I, I realise there are many conversations going on there. Um, my brain's lost your question for a second, Charlie. You have to tell me again. <laughs> no, of course. Well, if we, we're just looking at the idea of that sort of cultural cringe, but, you know, so that's one kind of aspect at, at play here. Um, how do you navigate, how do we navigate that as, as story makers in this environment now in order to kind of get to an, an aspirational future that, you know, I think our hearts know is, is possible, but yet our minds might struggle to kind of realise it. It is impossible to find an authentic way to navigate these types of conversations until you understand who you are, how you have come to be, what has come before you, and own your shit. (laughs) 
signs are probably the best way to say it. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but you know, own yes, your business. You <laughs> own oh, your no, business. Own your shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's that 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 is it. That, Part of the cultural cringe is because people are still not quite identifying and understanding who they are here. You know, this is a conversation I have with my younger sister, Frances, um, who was born on the 26th of January. And the time that she was born, 1990, it wasn't actually that big a deal. It was only 1994 that it became a national, you know, public holiday um, trying to celebrate the structure that is. And Australia, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and for her that's always been a strange challenge because she's got a British dad. My dad remarried. Her, her mum is um, from the Philippines. So she has a different cultural identity and she's also born here and, and loves that she's had wonderful experiences growing up here but doesn't also feel like that she can call herself Australian in some ways. Um, and because what does it mean to to use that name and that identity? What am I signing up to? You know, and, and I think of that as well. Um, sometimes, and this is important for me to say, this is a really important point. Sometimes in Australia, people assimilate you on your behalf without your consent. They do that to me when they hear this voice indicates that I have been here for some time to have a somewhat Australian accent. There are, you know, every now and then French lilts and English bits and things like that because of the parents that I've grown up with. Um, but by and large, you can tell that I've been around. And there is a, a, a whitewashing away from my cultures when people hear this voice. They assume that I am not as connected, that I don't have a deep sense of of who I am and will literally talk to me in a different way. And that is quite concerning. So to navigate how I iterate my connection between generations, connection between cultures, my assertion, my right to assert how I view the world and document that in a way that people can receive and interact with past my lifetime is to to make sure at all times I am consulting everybody around me in the formulation of these stories but owning my business in saying well I am a multiracial human and I have privileges that are attached to that as soon as I have this accent there are assumed privileges that are attached to that, having had the opportunity to go through university, to um, to live independently somewhat, and all of these things. These are these are levels of privilege, and just because I am a black woman doesn't mean that I am without privilege. It's all about context. So I think the way to navigate is to work out who you are, the privileges that you have, and you will always have have some. And how you get to flex in those spaces to support others around you. And then as humans as well, we will often have not privilege, but the polar opposite and be minoritized, marginalized. And you hope there are those around you to be your accomplices, I would say. I don't like the word ally. I think it's BS. 
ally just assumes that, you know, you, you have good faith and a good heart, but it doesn't indicate anything about action. Um, I will say you need accomplices around you because an accomplice is someone who is going to ride or die. They are going to go down with you. They have to have skin in the game and you have to be prepared when you hold your privileges and you understand what they are, you have to be prepared to give stuff up. And that is not the world that we have been told we live in. We've been told that you have the rights to everything and you can do all the things and, and be on all of the social medias and have this, this amazing identity and no one can take away your power and all of those awful inspirational quotes that you see. All of that stuff strips away your understanding of your responsibility as a human and as a community member. That's what this is. It's looking up to understand the privilege and your flex and it's looking around to how is someone else holding me. Mm. And maybe in a, in a smaller environment, those responsibilities are more apparent because you need to step up because that is what supports the structure of the existence of humanity in that location. But in a way, when you're in a big city, you can kind of like palm that off to someone else. It's the government's problem or it's, you know, mm -hmm. it's not my, it's not my thing. Surely there's a charity for that or so that surely there's, um, you know, yeah. some other thing that, that um, you know, and I'm just going to focus the on this. The, the, is it Kitty Genovese? Is that the, the, the name of the woman who um, it's, it's now kind of seen as, as, a, as a societal effect, uh, a woman who was killed on, on the street um, in, in America, I think it was in New York, and, um, and she, she bled to death, but they worked out that if someone had just called the police and ambulance, um, she might have lived. Now, New York is a busy place and it's been a busy place for a few hundred years. How does that happen and no one, no one made the call? What they've looked at is everybody assumes that somebody else is going to take responsibility in that instance. That, that is the, the effect of these population hubs. I, I don't have to do it because oh yeah you're oh, I'm busy and I've got to go to work and yeah but poor woman but um yeah you're, to you're gonna, yeah I've got content to make you know I've, I've got to feed the marketing beast um so yeah you're you're gonna make the call no one made the call woman died so th that that effect is what we we live through and that is also to be applied in in an artistic sense in in the way we storytell as well is you know oh i'm i'm just going to do this thing over here um yeah i could i could tell story in a different way I, I i could do some more research and whatever but those people over there they're doing that work so i'm just going to you know do my fluffy filters and keep on trucking and that's fine and stick in your lane yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, calling it how it is, let's call spades. It takes energy and time to have genuine connection. Again, this neoliberal society that we're currently in does not respect energy and time. The demand is, is always too much and too great, you know. I think there's yeah. still a fundamental thing going on here where people are like, you're doing this for fun, aren't you? And and he, here's the rub, Joel. This is this is exactly how what you've described. You're doing this for fun. 
you know, you should just be happy that I throw you some crumbs <laughs> monetarily. <laughs> that is the way the structure, the megaliths above change you from being a community oriented and responsible storyteller into just a fappy, vapid content maker. That is exactly how they do it because it will take the time and genuine connection for you to do all the right work and they don't want to pay for it. I mean, looking in pandemic, I was galled by the fact that so many friends, I mean, this happened to me as well, but I, I want to say that it, it's not just about me. So many people I know mm. um, did not qualify for job keeper, job seeker or any of that type of stuff. And so lost, lost into the thousands. One of my friends lost their home because the affordability was just not there. And why? Because the type of ABN they are the type of uh, sole contractor that they they are as a freelance artist was not supported by this government. Now that tells you a lot about um, who is seen as creators and makers that need the support of society. We were not. We we just were not. And it's very upsetting that the arts industry in response coming out of pandemic and suddenly moving into, okay, we can have performances again and we can we can do all of the, the creative outputs and productions. They didn't up their fees to make up for any of this. The organizations who themselves got the job keeper and the job seeker, even when they were making nothing, they 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 were fine. And then the artists come through having just been completely obliterated by this pandemic and the goal for them to offer you less crumbs. You might get one crumb. People's fees have gone down. I've seen fees that say inclusive of super. That's not even legal. You know, this this is the, the beast that we're dealing with and I'm so disappointed in in the industry continuing to say but we're here for you and we're listening and we're learning no you're not no you're not you are not advocating at what point did you not understand your privilege and Mm -hmm. own your shit and become advocates upwards to your funders to say we need more because we need to give more to these artists to make genuine work. I mean, the flip side is uh, the adage of um, of uh, Margaret Thatcher. This is one that, again, my dad told me one of the reasons why he was like, oh, I'm out, I can't deal with these people anymore. Um, Margaret Thatcher famously said, uh, if you pay an artist £100,000 to make a public artwork, It'll be a wonderful sculpture. They'll do all the the research. They'll bring together beautiful stories about this community and everyone will come together and love it. If you pay them a thousand pounds, they'll do the same thing. So why pay them more? Margaret Thatcher, owner, maker of one of the beasts of, of, of modern commercialism. This is how it is. Then this is how it is. It's deeply concerning. Um, I want to talk, I know, I know we're probably running out of time, um, but I, I think we, I honestly think we could probably record, you know, hours. We could just sit here all day yeah, and talk. Props. Um, <laughs> which is lovely, which I, you know, let's do this again. Um, yeah. uh, do a part two, just split it up. Part two, yeah, just split it up. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about, I want to talk about media. Mm. 
and 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 mass media in particular, and the and the way in which uh, and the responsibility of mass media in the stories that are told in the world. Um, do you feel like we're we're on the right pathway? Just you know, at a kind of national or global sense, in terms of you know some of these kind of principal concerns you have with story making and the process of that. Do you do you feel like at a kind of global level, uh, story is being used in the in the right way, or are we so going in a, a different direction where where actually story is actually being uh, a harmful? Is, is stories are actually kind of harmful for the way in which we exist in the world and our future? We're on a highway to hell. Honestly, <laughs> it is not going well at all. Um, we're going down. Jump in the handbasket, Joel. It is all over from here because the 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 media is so good at understanding how to fake authenticity and genuine connection and packaging a story to increase empathy. I mean, as, as, as a trained composer as well, I can't tell you how many times people have approached me to, to write a thing and, and they really want me to use the tropes of you know, swell of strings to have a, a heartfelt emotional moment at this particular hit point, you know? And, and at that point I'm saying, well, no, I, I don't feel this and that's, that's not a thing. So you can, you can just go to a commercial yeah. music maker for that. And I don't begrudge them that because, yeah, I, I don't. I don't pay that music maker's rent. So cool, make your money, and that is fine. But that is not what you get a storyteller to do for you. <laughs> so um, media is is uh, part of this marketing beast in having a new skin, a new face of how they deliver particular stories. And the danger here is that um, with media comes an authority of truth. Every society has always had a sense of media. Sometimes the storyteller has been the media in, in, in society. You're the, the gatherer of, of knowledge. You tell what's happened in that town through this song. The, the troubadour system was a great example of that for, for, for many centuries and continues. Um, so, you know, we've always looked to a voice of media as the sense of authority in place. Uh, publishing has been deeply respected as having had the rigour of editing and research and uh, crediting in the right ways. That is automatically inbuilt into the way we are raised with media around us in a modern sense and that is totally used against us with the media being very clever in how to, to you know, push a story in a particular direction. And we see this in, in ways that have had detrimental um, and long-lasting damage. Uh, for example, in, in the elections in the US and Facebook really targeting and, and pivoting one community against each other as as part of big data being bought and and um, used by media machines and and fake news outlets in a way puffing up stories to incite and in one direct case that we all know it to incite violence so media it's got some responsibilities it doesn't always stand up to them 
the issue that we face is that the demand for media has become an every day, all day, to the second, to the minute uh, phenomenon. Whereas once upon a time, you might go down to the to the local cinema and you'd see the once a week newsreel, and that was it for the week, or the newspapers. I want to exist in that smaller. world. <laughs> I, I would like to exist in that world as well, because in the meanwhile, you're not consuming and reacting and, and being pushed to feel, pushed to then um, change your own pathways according to what is demanded of you. You are out there living with some mental health headspace away from that the news cycle. So me- media has has a big role to play in the change of of the skin of story and, and also what I term to be hollow representation as well. Uh, I'm really tired of people using my image and my presence, my long last names that have almost all the letters of the alphabet um, to indicate a, a token sense of, oh, diversity. We've got this woman. She's got lots of things going, neurodiverse and Rwandan, you know, because of the genocide and the things and the, and, and she's brown and, and blah, blah, blah. Like the ways that I'm used, <laughs> the ways that people have used, again, assimilated without my consent, um, often, uh, these things are not disclosed uh, in contracts and that type of stuff. So um, uh, by use, using people like me in campaigns, I then become a signal of, well, this is a safer space for others who might look like you. So we want to tap into your communities. We want to also look like we are of all community rather than just speaking from, in this case, because we're both in in um, in. Um, you know, just speaking from a, a Western and colonial context of being being in Australia, uh, and and again that that is really dangerous because we are not at a state where artists and and storytellers and just humans have been taught how to pick apart the machine of the media and and how they're engaging with you. It takes some time and it it takes some learning. It took me finding a mentor who's older than me. I have a mentor in my life who's who's 10 years older than me Um, and she, you know, she really sat me down one day and said, look, you've got to stop doing gigs like this because they're not serving you, this is not helping and I said, well, yes, but they never tell me this when I'm signing the contracts and the contract is signed and then how do I how do I reclaim or get them to reframe this entire ad campaign they've done or whatever it is or this media story that they've cut in a way that is is just trying to be really trauma porn and talking about my connection to, to Rwanda, how I went home to Rwanda with my mum just after the genocide in 94 and, and to, to save family and all of those types of things. Um, you know, so having having connections to home that people don't always assume when they hear this Australian accent. And and my mentor said, look, um, well, the, the devil is in the detail and you just need to get ahead, write your own clauses into these contracts to make sure that how you're framed and how your story is told um, is more in your power and your control. And if they are not willing to do that, then the beast has showed themselves to you. You know, and I think that's something for all storytellers and artists to understand do not just sign what has come across your desk and feel like this these words are the only words you can engage with you have the power they need you at all times they need you you have the power to write back and say great 
happy with these things. And also tell me the context in which this is going to happen. Tell me how this story is going to be related. I need to have full sign off before anything goes to air. I need to make sure that you story check, fact check um, all of your sources and credit them. And as will I, and I need those credits on there because I'm talking about cultural story or I'm talking about this community and it is beyond me. I'm your mouthpiece here, but I am not the beyond all and end all of this one interaction. You have the authority to do that and the media, if they're to hold to their words of of their great intentions, has to step in line. Mm. Mm. Yes, it's the, it's really the uh, it's the it's the power and control. It's the same thing that applies across uh, across all forms of storytelling and the way in which it's been constructed in this in this global environment now which is essentially you have the gatekeepers of story and you have the story makers the storytellers and and that the 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 power and control aspects of 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 this are meaning that certain things are getting through and certain things aren't and the things that are getting through you know personal perspective here are those stories that will um enrage and excite and incite and 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 bring forth you know the most eyeballs in order for 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 what end mm. and and that um that power structure is is not new it just has a new face with uh digital access um you know i think of the the burning of the great library of alexandria that was a deliberate action to remove to remove and to debase a cultural entity that had collected stories from around the world from merchant traders. Um, and with knowledge is power, you know. So to push people away from these culturally engaged storytelling and, and art presentation styles uh, is to take away their power. It, it is a form of genocide and the truest definition of genocide. Genocide is not just about um, uh, the physical removal and violent means of humans. It is also about removing language, removing religion, removing knowledge and story systems and intelligence systems. So this is what the media engages with in modern terms. I mean, that yeah that that is the best way way to to put it i think for me um that that it's always existed but but you know they will beat you until you you like it mm. <laughs> the one thing that kind of for me comes back time and time again is this idea of time <laughs> and the time that it takes and that that time that it takes to create, develop, make any story is is vast and requires, if we want to go to the depths and create great stories, requires Mm. the time. What's your thoughts on that? Because my relationship with time is different to what, 
I assume for neurotypicals, I mean, it's, it's hard because it, it's within me. So I, I don't always know. But from what I gather for other people, you know, when I take a week to get people back to people on emails or texts or sometimes a few weeks or a month, that's a long time. Whereas in my world, it's just, it just is. Um, and so I think I have the luxury sometimes of, of, how my neurodiversity frames my understanding of what I prefer to say is temporality, how how I'm navigating through this world in the cycles that I see and exist. We're on a really hot summer's day here, but in a few weeks it's it's about to change um, in, into autumn. Yes, I'm melting here. My, mm. Yes. <laughs> um, so my my understanding and experience of temporality tells me that that question that I ask in in my storytelling practice of people, what is the legacy you want to live, is really pertinent to how we understand that we're just one sentence, sometimes even just one letter in a story that, that has come before us and that continues after us. So how, how are we contributing? And uh, in, in these modern circumstances we've been talking about with with media and and colonialism and and mega population structures and all of those types of things um they are forcing you to try and have some form of wholly formed uh, definitive stamp of your output within your lifetime there's no one saying you might get part way through the work and then leave this earth and then who picks up the work from where you are and continues? No one is saying that in our modern existence. But that's how it used to be, That how it continues to be for some cultures. And I think that's how we have to think of ourselves because none of us have the luxury of knowing when we're going to leave this earth. That can, that can often be a surprise. So, you know, what if, what if I die tomorrow, Joel? Yeah. So from my conception of temporality, having time and space blindness um, with my neurodiversity, I understand a sense of float. I, I experience a sense of float and that informs my artistic practice as someone who asks, what legacy do you want to leave on this earth? And realizes that my quote unquote work on this earth may not be finished before I go. It's, it's a mystery as to me when, when that is. Hopefully not for a long time, but who knows. So how then do I make sure that people around me can pick up the work if they choose to long after I'm gone? And how can we as art artists and as storytellers connect with each other to make sure that we're on the same page about that interaction that yes you might create a body of of work that looks like a lot of production in some regards to the the beast the monsters the megaliths the the huge population centers um the media structures the the colonial structures that demand uh, authority with authorship, the publish or perish people. That may all be well and good for you. And and if that is your journey, great, I'm glad. But there also has to be respect for 
all of the people that are behind that and all of those who have who have provided you and shared with you their story their cultural knowledge their information their experience of this earth that has allowed such a person to then turn it around and produce it and make a thing that lives on after them through time because the supporters they are just as successful in life and they too have achieved but in these structures it it doesn't recognize them as having a sense of achievement and this is what we need to to start to disrupt and say no someone might never publish a book have a stage play be on film whatever it is whatever modality of storytelling but that doesn't stop them from being a storyteller and it doesn't stop them from being a culturally sharing and translating human that supports others to create those presentations you know so so the respect mechanisms need to be reinstated um and i say this in in western terms for western terms um very often that's not the case in non-western circumstances we do respect those who are who are the suppliers of the material i I think i spoke recently um about you know there are the book readers and then there are the doers there are the book readers and the book writers and the doers and maybe sometimes you know the, the doers it doesn't mean they're less intelligent because they're not reading the books or writing the books but my gosh they are the content of those books it's got to come from somewhere, you know. So um, it, it's important to, yeah, it's important to try where you can to support and change your definitions of success, change your definitions of achievement, supporting those around you who are always supplying you as storytellers with this vital bloodline of information and connection that you then have the extreme privilege of working with to to present in hopefully a way that everybody feels is appropriate, is respectful and is everlasting beyond your time here on this earth. Stephanie Kamanyanik and Yannickwe, thank you so much for joining us on the Storymakers Institute today. It really has been a, a beautiful and meandering conversation uh, across so many, <laughs> so many paths, and um, and I just want to thank you so much for for sharing your thoughts on on this on this topic, which I continually find um, so fascinating because it's not just about getting a book and going. This is how you make stories. It's actually so much more fundamental to the way in which this society works. Story informs society, society informs story, and it's on this ongoing loop that goes back and forth and back and forth. And I think if we want to change the world we're in, we have to change our stories. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of what this podcast is about. So thank you for joining me today. <laughs> thank you so much for, for having me and I hope we can continue to share stories together. Mm-hmm.